Good morning. My name is Jorge Benuales. I'm a professor in Cambridge, where we're recording these lectures this morning. Uh, the topic of this, of this lecture, which is a follow-up to my previous lecture on the framing of the issue of uh, state responsibility for internationally wrongful act, is one of the three main components of the secondary norms of state responsibility, uh, namely the issue of the conditions for uh, uh, state responsibility. As I was saying earlier, uh, there is a difference between primary and secondary norms, and secondary norms are triggered when there is a breach. Uh, now, there are a range of conditions that are identified in, the, uh, in general international law and that are codified in the uh, ILC Articles on State Responsibility in the 2001 version. Um, my purpose here is, of course, not to paraphrase or repeat what any reader can, can read and find in those articles, but to give some perspective on those articles. So part one uh, of those articles uh, looks at the conditions of state responsibility. It has five chapters. Uh, it goes from general principles to attribution, then the definition of a breach, then issues of complicity, and, and later the issue, much debated issue of circumstances precluding wrongfulness. Uh, what I would like to do here is, is not to go through the entire range of, of chapters uh, and, 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 and provisions, but essentially to do three things. The first is to uh, try to capture the essence of uh, these conditions, of this part one, uh, and then uh, zoom in and look at two very, very important issues in practice, which are the issues of attribution of conduct to a state and the issue of uh, the inclusion of uh, circumstances precluding wrongfulness uh, in the ILC Articles uh, of 2001. So let me first look at the, the system, or, or the essence, of, the, of part one of the ILC Articles. So the pivotal notion here is the notion of breach. Uh, as I mentioned in the first lecture, uh, the definition of whether a primary norm is breached or not, of course, is, uh, requires uh, an analysis of the primary norm itself, which will have a number of conditions, but it also requires an analysis of certain secondary norms that define conditions for uh, a breach to trigger consequences. Now, it would be trivial to say that uh, when a primary norm defines a conduct, if that conduct is not observed, that is a breach. But the specifications of the ILC articles in this respect go further. And uh, in Article 12, which is very, very important, the ILC articles uh, make two clarifications regarding breach. The first clarification is that there is a breach irrespective of the source of the primary norm. So irrespective of whether the primary norm is based on a contract that is a treaty in international law, or whether it is based on what could be seen as common law, which is customary international law, or whether that is a general principle of law uh, as recognized in Article 38.1c of the Statute of the Court, or whether that arises from a unilateral act uh, uh, 
a unilateral act that creates a binding commitment uh, for reasons of good faith, or any other source, any other formal source of international law, well, the breach and the triggering of the consequences is in a way colorblind to the source of the primary norm. That is very important because it shows the difference between uh, international law and domestic law, and, and possibly it would, be, it would be a confusion to think that because a primary norm arises from a treaty uh, and not from customary norm, uh, the customary international law of state responsibility would not be applicable. Now, the second consideration, which is very important and may appear uh, trivial, but it's absolutely not, is the fact that uh, a breach is also uh, colorblind with respect to the character of the primary norm. So not just colorblind with respect to the source of the primary norm, but also the character. And by character, uh, the, uh, the meaning of the term character in, in the LC articles is whether a norm is more or less important, whether a norm is a synalagmatic norm, a sort of a private reciprocal norm, or it is much more of a norm uh, that could be uh, assimilated to public law, for instance, human rights. So at that level, at that level, the, the ILC articles remain colorblind to the stratification of primary norms in international law. I was saying earlier in the first lecture that over the second half of the 20th century there has been a, a very strong trend towards a stratification, the recognition of different types, a hierarchy between primary norms, particularly with the notion of peremptory norms of international law that cannot be derogated from. And that is not important at the level of the first part of the ILC articles. So that is something to keep in mind. The ILC articles, the first part, not the second and third, but the first part of the ILC articles that define the conditions of breach, they apply to any primary norm irrespective of the source and irrespective of the character. But the second point to be mentioned uh, uh, in connection with part one of the LC articles is a type of conduct that may uh, constitute the breach. The LC articles uh, look at this conduct uh, in, a, in a very, in a, in a rather detailed manner, I would say. Uh, one important point, I guess, uh, there are three main clarifications here, but one important point to be kept in mind is that uh, the LC articles are not looking only at action, but also at omissions. So a breach triggering secondary norms can uh, emerge from both conduct and omissions. That is uh, expressly stated in the very definition of an internationally wrongful act in Article 2 of the LC Articles, and is in practice very important. Uh, one has only to remember that uh, the Alabama Claims Arbitration of 1871 found the U United Kingdom in breach of its neutrality obligations because of an omission of due diligence, not necessarily an action. And that has been very important in practice over time uh, one founding arbitration of 1941, the Trail Smelter Arbitration between the United States and Canada, also found uh, Canada in breach 
of its international obligations as a result of an emission to properly regulate a, a private party. And the same thing could be said today, for instance, of human rights. So the state has different obligations in connection uh, with human rights, an obligation to respect, but also an obligation to protect uh, human rights from deprivation by third parties or by some events. And that is essentially uh, an obligation that may be breached by omission. Still another example could be the issue of uh, the granting of full protection and security under investment treaties. Uh, a state has the obligation to uh, grant full protection and security, and that obligation may be breached by an omission to grant that protection. So you see that uh, including in the conduct that may lead to a breach, both actions and omissions is, is very important. Uh, a second issue that is, is, is clarified by the LC articles, specifically in Article 14 of the LC articles, is the time of the breach. Uh, now, in some cases, the time of the breach may be very easily determined. Uh, that would be, for instance, a one-off action, a one-off breach, the taking of property, a decree of expropriation, uh, would be very easily identifiable, and that would be the time of the breach. But there are other cases where the time of the breach is more difficult to determine, or at least has a number of implications, uh, such as, for instance, if a person is being imprisoned, or if a person has been forcefully disappeared. Uh, so the, the, the time of the breach may be continuous, because this is a continuous act. Uh, in the case of imprisonment, for instance, as long as a person is unlawfully imprisoned, uh, the unlawful uh, act would continue. Uh, there is also the idea of uh, breaches of prevention. This is, this is very, very complex in practice, because the LC articles state that uh, a breach of an obligation of prevention lasts uh, until the uh, situation that is created uh, as a result of the lack of, of the violation of prevention obligation remains. Now, there are many different framings in practice. I would just like to mention uh, one uh, possible framing, just to give you an example. You may imagine uh, a situation where a state is conducting a ultra-hazardous activity and creating a very high risk uh, because it is conducting that activity in a negligent manner. What does it mean to conduct that in a negligent manner? Well, for present purposes, to go quickly, uh, in a manner that is not consistent with international standards for that specific activity. In that case, irrespective of harm, uh, uh, the obligation of uh, the obligation of prevention would require the state to be to use uh, to reduce that that risk by applying uh, the uh, required uh, standards of diligence. That would be, of course, in the primary norm. But the definition of how long or when the breach takes place is is appears in a secondary norm, which is Article 14, as I was saying. The third clarification. Uh, does not concern any anymore the, uh, the time of the bridge here, but the, uh, the nature of the bridge, which is the idea of a, of a composite bridge. So a bridge, 
can be the result of not just one single action or omission, but a series of actions or omissions. And that uh, composite bridge uh, may take place uh, throughout the entire set of actions of omissions. So the point here is when does it start and when does it end? It is a very complex and fact-specific issue uh, in practice. One may think of, for instance, uh, a range of, uh, or a series of incidents of pollution that all together lead to significant harm to the environment of another state or beyond national jurisdiction. One may think, for instance, uh, of the uh, accumulation of emissions of greenhouse gases that uh, all together may lead to uh, a breach of the significant harm, uh, the prevention principle, the primary norm. One may also think of uh, something which is very often claimed in investment arbitration, which is the fact that, well, there are a range of factions and omissions that constitute specific breach, breaches of, of different uh, investment standards, but also all together they may be considered to be uh, a breach of, say, the fair and equitable treatment standard or uh, the clause on expropriation when, when a party claims a creeping expropriation. So you see that uh, there is an articulation here between the conditions set in the primary norm of obligation and certain conditions that are uh, uh, defined in the uh, secondary norm. The secondary norms are, in a way, filtering or clarifying matters that may not necessarily appear in the primary norm. And that filtering is important in order to uh, trigger secondary norms relating to consequences. So, so far, I have been discussing within the subject conditions, first, the, uh, the system, uh, uh, the system of, uh, of, of state responsibility, and uh, second, I have been referring to uh, the issues of uh, conduct, the type of conduct. Let me now turn to two additional issues that I wanted to uh, uh, address. One is the issue of attribution, and the other is the issue of circumstances precluding wrongfulness. On attribution, on attribution, this is very, very important, very important in practice. The uh, 2001 uh, ILC articles they retain the concept of uh, the 1996 uh, uh, draft, but they, uh, they streamlined a little bit them, these, these different uh, cases or hypotheses of attribution. The idea is when can conduct, whether an action or an omission, be attributed to the state? And there are four main cha channels. There are different provisions. That is chapter two of part one of the LC articles uh, of 2001, but there are four main channels. Uh, the first, the simpler uh, channel, is a structural channel. So any organ of the state that is an organ of the state uh, by virtue of the law of the state will be, uh, will, whenever it acts or omits uh, necessary action, irrespective of the nature of the act, whether that act is in a sovereign capacity or in a commercial capacity, and also if the organ is act acting ultra-virus beyond its specific instructions, well, that 
act or omission will be attributable to the state. This is a structural test. The second channel through which conduct can be uh, attributed to a state is not structural, it is functional. And that concerns uh, particularly a range of uh, instrumentalities, entities, uh, through which a state may perform a number of public functions. Uh, typically, these entities have a separate legal personality, and uh, the actions or omissions of those entities will be attributable to the state uh, on the condition that these entities, these instrumentalities, uh, are uh, empowered with the exercise of public authority, and that the action or omission in question was in the exercise of those of that public authority. So as you may uh, see, there is a big difference between these two options, the structural and the, the, the functional test, uh, and it's the fact that here, for the functional test, the nature of the act is very important. So whereas a commercial act under the structural test is attributable to a state, uh, under the functional test, a commercial act would not be attributable to a state, because only acts in the exercise of public prerogatives uh, by an instrumentality that's overall uh, empowered with the exercise of public prerogatives would be attributable to a state. Uh, this is uh, regulated in Article 5 of the LC Articles. I should mention in passing that there is a more flexible practice regarding uh, when this test is met in the case of investment arbitration, uh, which considers uh, different hypotheses, but it tends to be a bit more lenient uh, in the requirements. Uh, the third main channel uh, through, which, through which conduct can be attributed is a factual channel. Now, this includes different provisions, but the idea here is that irrespective of whether there is a structural or a functional relationship between the uh, entity acting and the state, there may be a factual relationship that is enough for conduct to be attributed. Now, Article 6 is a, is a simpler one. It's, it's simply when the organs of a third state are placed at the disposal of uh, the uh, potentially responsible state. But the most interesting uh, hypothesis here is that uh, in Article 8 of the LC Articles, which is conduct of an entity under the direction or control of the state. Now, that has led, the, the level of control that has to be met uh, for conduct to be attributable has led to a range of uh, discussions, both in the case law of different tribunals and in uh, academic circles. It is a very important point in practice. Uh, historically, or not that late in, I mean, in the 1980s, let's put it in those terms, uh, in the 1980s, uh, in the Nicaragua case of 1986, uh, the International Court of Justice uh, placed a very high threshold of specific control over a specific act. So the conduct would not be attributable to a state unless there was really specific instructions, specific control over the act, not just over the entity. That test was some, somewhat called into question in the 1990s by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia that applied a different, a different threshold, that of a general control uh, over the entity that is acting, uh, and not necessarily the control of the, the specific instruction over the action that is performed by that entity. But in 
the 2007 genocide case, uh, the International Court of Justice uh, clarified that the test under general international law is that of specific control. And that is a test that is uh, reflected in Article 8 of the ILC Articles. I should mention again that uh, the investment case law has been a bit more lenient and more flexible in this respect. And, and that, uh, that is important because in practice it will make a big difference for the attribution of conduct. The last uh, channel through which uh, apologies, I, I have to mention just Article 9 in passing, which is still in the factual test, which is the de facto organs, the idea of uh, a private non-state actors exercising um, uh, functions of the state in a situation where the state is not present and where the state should be present. Uh, so now let me move into the, uh, the, the last channel, so structural, functional, factual, and now the last channel is the retrospective channel, which is essentially when uh, the actions of a non-state actor, that is an insurrectional group, uh, and becomes either the government or a new state, uh, those actions of the insurrectional group are not, of course, attributable to a state, uh, or they are only attributable to a state only if the group becomes the government of that state or if the, go or if the, if the group manages to establish a new state. So in that case, it would be attribution. Uh, the second probably very important uh, uh, hypothesis of a retrospective uh, attribution is when a state endorses, endorses the actions of a non-state actor uh, that were not performed under directional control that is Article 11, uh, and a good example of that, uh, that the court, the International Court of Justice uh, uh, found was the uh, 1980 Tehran hostages case uh, uh, that the court uh, uh, decided uh, uh, and, and clarified that this hypothesis of, of attribution. So this is what I wanted to say uh, about attribution. A very last component that I wanted to mention uh, in this first lecture on the conditions is the issue of circumstances precluding wrongfulness. So again, let me recap before I move into this issue. So far we looked at the system uh, or, or the heart of the part one of the LC articles and there we looked at the nature of the breach and the nature of the conduct. Then I moved into the issue of attribution and I clarified the four main channels, structural, functional, factual and retrospective. And now I'm moving into the last issue for this uh, lecture on, on the conditions of state responsibility, which concerns uh, circumstances precluding wrongfulness. My point here is not to go through the six uh, circumstances that are uh, reflected in the uh, ILC articles, uh, namely uh, consent, self-defense, countermeasures, force majeure, uh, distress, uh, a necessity. Uh, my, my point here is, is really to, uh, to look at the, uh, the reasoning behind the, the, uh, the inclusion of these this different uh, uh, circumstances. As you may imagine, uh, it is difficult to include in a set of ILC articles that is supposed to be uh, circumscribed to secondary norms, uh, to include norms such as the right to self-defense. Of course, the right to self-defense is a primary norm. Uh, and there was a lot of debate about inclusion of, of circumstances such as consent 
the right to self-defense and others. Uh, I should mention two considerations that, in my view, justify very clearly the inclusion of these circumstances. The first consideration is that uh, the, the way in which at least some of these circumstances are included in the LC articles is not meant to define them. So the LC articles are not meant to define or circumscribe the scope in general international law of the right to self-defense. That may be different for necessity, for instance, but at least for an issue such as self-defense, uh, the LC articles were only meant to recall them, to recall their relevance uh, uh, in the context of state responsibility. The second consideration that I think is more important is that although, although uh, some of the circumstances may be primary and not secondary norms of international law, it is certainly the case that they are relevant in the analytical steps that one must follow in order to move from whether a primary norm of conduct has been breached, whether that breach is so, so whether that breach is justified or excused, and only if that breach is not justified or excused, it would be relevant to actually move into the next analytical step, which is to derive the consequences of the breach. I think uh, that that is probably the, uh, the most persuasive explanation that was given in the, in the wide debates that were, uh, that were triggered by the inclusion of circumstances precluding wrongfulness in, in the ILC articles, in both uh, the ILC and academic circles. And I think it's very important to keep in mind that irrespective of the characterization of each one of those circumstances as primary or secondary norms, the distinction between primary and secondary norms is a conceptual distinction. It's merely a conceptual distinction uh, introduced for the purpose of circumscribing and facilitating uh, a process of codification. So all in all, uh, what we have seen in this, uh, in this second lecture uh, that concerned the conditions of state responsibility is essentially that for a breach to uh, trigger consequences, uh, consequences that we're going to discuss in the next lecture, uh, there has to be an act or an omission that amounts to a breach of a primary norm irrespective of, of its origin or of its character, uh, that conduct has to be attributable to the state through one of the channels, structural, functional, factual, or retrospective. And that breach has to be not justified or excused. So on those conditions, there are a range of consequences uh, that are triggered by a breach that we're going to discuss in the next lecture. Thank you very much.